0: You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now
1: we're very fortunate today to have the CEO of the Allentown Art Museum with us today David Mickenberg David thanks for joining us it's a pleasure we uh, i know we've had several conversations in the past about the arts and how they can impact society and how you make them relevant to a larger audience and we'll we'll definitely talk about that in a little bit I was wondering for, for the people that are listening who, a, a part of our audience, uh, I think, are people who are intending to get involved in the arts, whether they are dancers or painters or musicians, or they are people who appreciate the arts and may want to fulfill some kind of volunteer role or perhaps uh, work at an institution you know, like a symphony, like a museum or, or a, a, you know, a dance company or something in an administrative role. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of, of your background of your professional journey. And I know it's, we couldn't barely scratch the surface. So you have a, a you know, you've been uh, uh, been in the arts world, you know, 30 plus years and, and have had a really uh, kind of storied uh, uh, professional journey. So tell us a little bit about how, how you arrived as the CEO of the Allentown Art Museum.
2: Well, I th- I think that you know the way you arrive in any position is somebody makes you an offer you can't refuse. So uh, I think I, I arrived in Allentown after being contacted by the search firm uh, that was looking that was helping the trustees look for a president and, and, and CEO. And at that point, I was uh, working in Roanoke, Virginia. But I think the broader question is, you know, how do you, how does one like me or like anybody um who I grew up in Brooklyn New York how do you get involved in the in the arts and i think that to a great degree it was um there were several people along the way who um, mentored me and and first were my parents who actually at the tender age of 7 i think had a desire to get me out of the house and hooked me up as a volunteer at the Brooklyn <laughs> museum and had me take art history courses at the brooklyn and had me take the treasure hunts that were at the brooklyn um and take advantage of ways of interacting with the, with the collection close to 50 years ago um and I did that from the time I was seven to the time I was nineteen, actually. Um and I think there was when I when I went to work at the Brooklyn Museum when I was a teenager, I got offered to teach classes at the at the Brooklyn in, in photography and hooked up with a team of people who were doing a lot of community-based art education uh programs both in the neighborhoods as well as in the in the in the Brooklyn Museum. And there was one person in particular who was head of community-based education at Brooklyn by the name of Lynn Cole, who unfortunately is no longer alive who basically was sort of a second mother to me and introduced me to community-based education and taught me how to teach and introduced me to photography in so many ways and so did all the other teachers that were there. So for me, it was an immersive environment with some really dedicated people that came out of the community. They lived around the Brooklyn Museum. They lived in the neighborhood, but um, they were multi-ethnic and who introduced me to, the, to really the power of the collections and the ability for those collections to alter lives. And then when I went away to, to college. Um, I had a professor who paid for me for eight summers to be an archaeologist in southern France, because my specialty, leading up to my my uh, uh, Ph.D., was which I never finished, um, was twelfth-century Burgundian architecture. And you know, once you get married and you need to raise a family, it's, It's very hard to live in France and be an archaeologist where they're paying you $4,000 for, uh, you know, in in travel and expense money for six or eight weeks of work. It just doesn't work that way. So that part of my career ended I actually went back to the Brooklyn Museum days of museum education and museum as community outreach and museum as economic development and museum as an educational force within the public school systems um, and slowly evolved into being a president and CEO because of – Um, A lot of work that I had done in the community and a lot of work that I had done with boards of trustees that had equal interest in how in the role of a museum within the development of communities. So I think that everybody that I grew up with volunteered. Everybody that I grew up with took classes in museums. Everybody that I grew up with um, worked in museums to one degree or another and it was part of the educational system to be able to do that. So I think that engagement starts at home. Engagement starts with the realization that the arts are really important to how a person develops socially, educationally, economically. Um, and then taking advantage of what's in your community um, in terms of the educational institutions, in terms of the arts institutions, in terms of uh, making yourself available or seeing um, how you can partner up with, with people. Um, so for me, that's how I got in, engaged. Um, but I got engaged in in both the art historical aspects as well as the communicative aspects as well as the presentation aspects and that um, eventually led me into being being a CEO of an arts organization because then you get to mold an organization into being a force within the within the community.
1: Well, and one thing you one well a lot of things you just said interest me, but in particular the The very begin the the beginning of things is something that always interests me because I see people who may have um, established themselves in whatever discipline they're in. And at some point, they took that first step, whatever you know that that may have been. And it's a, a debate that happens a lot today with with respect to public schools and curriculum, whether. Arts are going to be in or out? Is it STEM or is it Steam? You know that whole debate. Um, and for you, it sounds to me as though it was this was all extracurricular. Did did your uh, did did your school when you were in elementary school or high school were, were there any interactions with the arts world through the schools or was it all outside of of your education, you know, your formal education at the early stages?
2: Well, I think it was a combination of both. So, um, I went to public schools in Brooklyn, New York. When you were in the first grade, you had to have a subscription to the New York Times. And the day started really reading the New York Times. And you learned to write concisely by uh, going to the page two of the, of the New York Times to look at the summary articles. And you were supposed to summarize the front page as in the short, concise way that the New York Times did on page two. Um, and then you went to the art sections, you went to other sections. But the object was to really have sort of a broad perspective on what was going on in society and life. And you started that at an early age. And there was arts education in the schools. There were art classes in the schools. There were trips to the ballet. There were trips to uh, the opera. There were trips to uh, the Brooklyn Museum and MoMA all throughout my my education. Um, and so that was fundamentally important. And I think that it is deeply concerning um, in terms of how education today has eliminated the arts and thinks the arts are fluff especially in light of almost every study that um indicates that people who go to graduate school do better if they've studied the arts and it doesn't matter what arts you studied it doesn't matter whether you're whether you're into music or visual arts or dance or poetry or literature the, lo- the the long and short of it is that that um engaging the arts leads to being a critical thinker um, and I happen to think that being in a museum, that visual thinking skills are critical to critical thinking skills. And the idea of eliminating the arts from curriculum as fluff is, is counterproductive to, um, having a quality ed- educational system. And it's nice to see that Allent- Allentown has actually reversed some of that in the last year by hiring 11 new teachers and a, and a really fascinating curriculum coordinator for the arts in Marianne Gross. But I think that for me, it was a combination of having um, a series of experiences with embedded in the public education system, and the offerings that were available to me and people my age. But at the same time, uh, the fact that we, I was able to, through the efforts of parents and other people in the community, take advantage of the openness of cultural institutions to um, uh, to my engagement with 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 the variety of art forms. So even working at the Brooklyn Museum, I got to eat lunch every Saturday for years with a dance company that was in residency. So I got to understand ballet, I got to understand modern dance because of those lunch periods which I ate with the dancers and and, and with with choreographers. Trevor Burrus
1: Well, you've sort of uncovered – I think there are two significant headwinds that kids have these days. Uh, We didn't really think this was going to be a public education debate but maybe it is. Uh, Well, it's not a debate. I think we think the same things. You have sort of this pullback out of the curriculum these days in in the elementary school ages of taking the arts out. Maybe that gets reversed here and there, but by and large, I think that's the trend. And you also have, you know, with technology being the way it is, and, you know, when when I was young in, you know, in the the 80s, uh, you know, people would tell you, well, you shouldn't watch television because it's passive and it it just pushes information to you. And you should go out and experience the world. You should, you know, read. It's a, you know, reading is a more active thing to do with your mind. Uh, experiencing art is a more active thing to do with your mind. But we have so many mobile devices now, and there is so much content being pushed to kids at an early age. How do you? deal with technology in terms of making it an ally instead of a foe, you know, in terms of trying to engage a younger younger audience?
2: I think that um, technology is neither good nor bad. It's both. And it depends upon how you use it and how you employ it. Um, I remember my parents telling me that – television was bad and it, you know, would ruin your brains if you watch TV, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things I've learned from my daughters is that television actually helps them focus, um, in a way that I'd never considered before. Um, so when my daughter does her um, finals this week and final papers this week at NYU, she will do it while watching TV and it actually focuses her, her attention in a way that's really interesting. And frankly, I'm not sure I understand that um, but I trust her um, and she's a filmmaking and, uh, um, and photography student at NYU at Gallatin. So um, I think that um, the question is not to be fearful of technology but to find a way to employ it as a means of communication and creativity. Um, the degree to which we can um, make the museum environment, just to talk about what I do in terms of the Anton Art Museum, um, more accessible to technology, the way we use technology in the galleries to communicate about art and to present a broader context behind art, the way we use technology to engage the art um, is a really um, creative, thoughtful way of 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 attracting younger audiences. And in fact, we live in sort of the... I was talking about this with my staff the other day. We live in sort of the sandwich generation. 50% of my audience gets their information from the morning call and the other 50% of my audience doesn't. Um, they get their information online. They get their experiences online. So we're going to have to find a way in the next 10 years to service both communities. Um, and that's a that's a difficult task and it's an expensive task. And it we're actually very good at one and we're nascent at the other. Um, but I do think that there are ways of using... Um, the engagement that let's say a a cell phone asks, that a cell phone provides you, um, both in terms of listening as well as in creating. So we're about to engage in a project that um, called Building Bridges and it's really a collaborative project that the museum is part of. It started with the Pool Rider Fellows last year and it's using photography as a means of community expressions about what their hopes, dreams, aspirations for the future of Allentown are and it's a way of empowering the community to use technology to communicate what this community wants in terms of the development of downtown. So we actually are hoping for 10,000 people to be using their cell phones and the cameras on their cell phones to submit photographs of of how they define Allentown and how they define the future of Allentown. That's another way of using the cell phone and using technology as a means of engagement. Um, The information and technology that relates to the communication in the museum environment about content and about artists' ideas and a way of engaging aging artists' ideas through the use of technology I think is, is really, really good. Um, the way of using technology to be able to differentiate the information which you deliver in the museum context between somebody who is 10, 15, 30, 50 is something that's really creative and really interesting to, um, to see happen.
1: Trevor The Building Bridges program is really pretty brilliant because you know, how many times do you walk down the street and see people Taking pictures of a building or a selfie or or, or what have you. So to get people to have the idea to take the picture and then whatever the next step is, whether they – are they emailing that to – so, Somewhat a right. contact point, or is there an app, or how well, does that?
2: How does I actually think there's several things. One is this is a combination of seven organizations that are that are coming together, and the only arts-related one is really the, the museum. There's Habitat for Humanity, the DA's office, um, LVHN, Promise Neighborhoods, Boys Club, Girls Club. I mean, etc. So, um,
1: so we have a whole range of, of social uh, social interests, uh, healthcare system, uh, law enforcement, and, and social and, services. And,
2: right. Correct, okay. coming together to work with the community in defining um, and giving a voice to the, to a community that really in some respects hasn't hasn't had a voice. And in fact, I would argue that um, the delivery of social services to the arts speaks really well to the origins of the arts of this country that, to begin with. And that's something that we have actually forgotten and which we hope to bring back at the museum in terms of the outreach of the museum and to the community. But I think that, that part of this is to realize that the future of – the arts in this country is based not upon top down presentations of the arts uh but a, but upon um engagement allowing people to engage the arts on multiple multiple levels and of realizing that it isn't just about high art um it's about all forms of art all forms of public expression and allowing that to be seen within the context of our of our institutions and the institutions i think have to provide a format and a forum for doing that and spend the time and energy to engage communities in new ways of looking Um, both at new works of art as well as at some of the masters which which we have. So it's – I think it's developing the technology. It's a way of listening to our community in terms of what the community – what the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the community are through the arts um, and then giving a voice to people to express that both in our institutions and out of our institutions while still supporting some of the more traditional definitions of, of cultural institutions.
1: So, having that feedback from the community, what is what is the next step? I know it's difficult anytime that you have, you know whenever you try to build a coalition of you know, even two or three organizations that are in the same general subject matter area, that's tough. Mm-hmm. But to get you know, six or seven together as you've described, and get everybody pointed in the same direction is not, not an easy task. What, what do you do with the information? How do you implement the, the, the will of the community, if, if, if you will?
2: Well, I think that this is something that um, in terms of collective impact um, is something that the Poole Ryder Foundation has been supporting and other foundations in the Valley have been, have been supporting. And it's sort of the new, a new catchphrase, if you will, about how institutions collaborate and work with the community. Um, I think the notion is that out of collaboration, out of a broad base of institutions coming together to achieve a common goal, you can engage the community in ever creative ways. Um, It used to be when I got started in this field, an an exhibition would be developed because there was a group of curators that would think it was great Um, and then you would present it to the community and then at the end of the day, um, you would inform the community as to why this was important. Right, um, And the same thing is true with other forms of art, whether it's music or dance, et cetera. And I think that some of that is still relevant, but listening to the community as to what the community wants, listening to the community as to what um, – w- how they would like to get engaged, and then finding a way to merge your – the mission and direction of the institution with community will and input uh, makes for more successful um, – Uh, bridge to the future. It's a way of saying that um, what's more important to people right now is engagement and having a voice. Um, When you look at the word clouds that were established through the planning that's going on, um, when you ask people how they think about the arts here, they will tell you about institutions. When you ask them what they want, there's not a single institution which is actually mentioned. What is mentioned is affordability, accessibility, loudness, connectivity, mm-hmm. um, affo- uh, but mostly accessibility and affordability, and a reflection of cultural values that are important to the community in which we live. But they don't. They don't. When talking about what happens in the arts in the community, they'll point to the museum, they'll point to the symphony, they'll point to civic, they'll point to any one of a number of institutions. But when you ask for aspirations and you ask for need that becomes a completely different question. And I think our institutions have to follow suit on that one. Um, and they're going to have to learn to adapt to what's what we're hearing from the community is the need. So I think that with the Building Bridges Project, it's listening to the community as to what their hopes and dreams are, and then creating facilitated conversations within the community that are based upon the accessibility to those images, the interpretation of those images, the ability to visually analyze those images for the meanings that are there, and provide a forum for... Connecting those images, connecting those meanings, connecting those hope streams, aspirations, to uh, uh, to the city itself.
1: So taking that from you know where you just ended, the next step is is what I mean with respect to a lot of visual art, and this is like in a very nuts and bolts kind of kind of question where. Whether it's painting or sculpture, you know, a lot of it has to exist in a controlled environment, whether it's uh, temperature, humidity or, or, or what have you. So it's not a, a, it's not always feasible or, or is it? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that it's not always feasible to you, – you can't have the collections go on the road, so to speak. You right. have to bring people into the building. Now, in – a lot of cities, uh, and Allentown's no exception, the art museum's right in the middle of the downtown, which is where, you know, if you were going to cite a place from scratch, you'd want to be in the middle of everything, and that's exactly geographically where it is. So that's desirable. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of people that, you know, are in the region that you don't get to reach for a host of reasons. You know, how do you bring... You know, how do you bring the collections outside the four walls of the of the museum?
2: Um, there are a lot of ways of answering that question. Certainly you're right. When it comes to, let's say, the Crest collection in the museum, which is the old master collection and the other old master paintings and old master textiles that we have and well, works of art on paper in general and textiles in general, those can't travel. They're fragile and part of the role of the museum is to be a trust mm-hmm. in which we preserve, we collect, preserve and interpret um those in perpetuity, you know, for the benefit of all. Um, the question becomes, how do you make how do you provide engaging experiences with those collections? How do you make those collections relevant to the 21st century? So how relevant is something from the 13th century to the to the to the 21st century? Um, and in fact, I think they're exceptionally relevant. There are ideas, concepts, media, technologies, techniques, which are incorporated in those paintings that are deeply relevant to today. So, I mean, one of the ways is what we did with with um, all of the art um, teachers in in Allentown six months ago. Um, we ran a program on change. What it means to be a teacher today, what kind of changes you need to have in the curriculum, et cetera. But we looked at the concept of change. Through the work of one 15th century painter who communicated theories about change. He was a mathematician who created perspective in Renaissance painting, who was one of the first people to mathematically analyze picture planes that you can show depth, um, taught it, and painted something known as the Sacred Conversation, say the St. Uh, Lucia Sacred Conversation uh, from 1465 or 1464, um, in which he the purposes of meaning and change completely screwed up the perspective in the painting, and this is the teacher and creator of perspective in painting, and um, did it because of what he was trying to communicate about the historical change between the Dark Ages and um, and the Renaissance, between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, between the between the world before Christ and the world after Christ. And it was all about light and he did it all through um, – it was all about light, scriptures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but it was all done through a screwing our perspective in the picture plane. It was using a 15th century painting in the context of the 21st century management. Who would have thunk that you can actually do that? <laughs> right. um, there are schools in America that teach all subjects, all STEM projects, all science, technology, engineering, math through the arts. You can teach mathematical principles through the arts. You can teach science through the arts. You can, um, so it's a way of making the arts relevant. Um, you can take the collections of the museum and make them extremely relevant to what's going on in the in in, in, in the community. Um, we've got 14,000 kids coming to the museum every year. Uh, we have 100,000 people that come downtown specifically to go to the, to the museum. I think the museum has to do two things. One is make what's inside the museum more engaging and more relevant through a variety of different approaches, um, but also take the museum out into the community and realize that this is about art. It's not just about the art that we own. It's about the art that we commission. It's about the uh, it's about the artistic experiences that we can foster. It's about using the art to create safe communities. It's about using art um, to create a better educational system. It's about using the art to foster interge- intergenerational communication. Um, it's about looking at the um, statistics from the promised neighborhood um, survey about what the community wants and helping deliver those hopes, dreams, aspirations through the arts. So we are looking through a, a Trex LeBrand to opening up an extension of the museum in the Promise Neighborhood um, in the NIS collar zone surrounding the the museum and we will do that as of April. Um, and that is specifically to create an, a safe environment focused on the arts that delivers on some of the promises about how you engage the arts for meaningful experiences.
1: Well, and, and just to um... Put a little bit of, of context around what David had just said. There is a lot of, I got, I don't want to call it a steering committee, but it, maybe it kind of is. Where there are, there's a consultant group in from uh, from out of the region, and the all of the arts organizations are together in planning sessions about what. Where do we go from here? Right. Um, the city has undergone um, a tremendous. Renaissance, really, there's no other way to describe it in terms of things, in terms of buildings and hockey arenas and offices and apartments and a lot of new construction, but there's a lot of people moving into the region and, and what, do we, what do we as an arts community do with that information? How do we right. serve that, that new population?
2: Yeah, i I think, it's, um, I think there's an effort to figure out how serious we are about using the arts as an economic driving engine and how do you do that? And there are places throughout the United States where the arts are an economic factor. Um, And you can look at what was just announced in in North Adams, Massachusetts a couple of days ago. In fact, I think it was on the front page of the New York Times on Sunday where there is an arts corridor being created. Um, About 15 years ago, they created for the economic to economically revitalize the North Adams community, Massachusetts MoCA was created in the old um, uh, in the old Sprague Electric plant, which was a half a million square foot facility that had laid dormant. Mass MoCA was was created as a means of economic development to create the largest um, uh, contemporary art museum in the United States. Um, it has been done. It has been doing exceptionally well. The impact on the community was vast, but they wanted it to be even greater, and so they've just announced a plan to add a corridor within North Adams, that would be another contemporary art museum. That would be a museum that I think was about uh, trains, um, as well. But it is designed to foster the development of the of the community and to make sure that North Adams flourishes. You know, from an, and emanates into an economically diverse and sustainable community from being an exceptionally poor community in the past. Um, I think the discussion about Allentown is is. Aside from the arts, creating an arts walk itself, how do, how do the arts, both the organizations as well as the profit and nonprofit sectors um, come together to create an economic plan for the city that fosters um, more economic development that makes the arts sustainable and that addresses the issues that the community wants from the arts? How do we create a, a 10-year or five-year plan? Um, and how do you create the infrastructure to make that happen? I think Corona, coming from Denver, um, is assisting uh, the museum and—not in, in the, the museum, but assisting the arts community in doing that. The—I um, think that's what you're referring to.
1: Yes. Well, no, yeah. it, it, it exactly was. Um, maybe switching gears a little bit. One thing that always in, that interests me about your background is that you have long tenures at. A couple of organizations, including where you left in Virginia to come here. And I I mean, I understand that there are, uh, when you said, you know, they made an offer that you couldn't refuse, and I'm not trying to get into all of that. But, you know, at some point, you realize or you feel that, I guess, a chapter is closing or you've completed what you set out to do. You know, w- was there some of that in in your decision when you when the Allentown opportunity came up? Yeah, I think any change is internally motivated,
2: and there are lots of reasons for it. So I was at Northwestern University for fifteen years, and um, I took what was inherently a thirty six hundred square foot building, turned it into a thirty thousand square foot building. Originally was not endowed; and was majorly endowed when I. When I left, we had built a theater, started a film program and had done major integration of the museum throughout the campus. Um, And Northwestern was a fascinating place but after 15 years, I internally felt the need to sort of move on and seek other challenges and went to Wellesley and that was a whole different set of challenges. Um, But I loved the interaction with students and being in academia at that point. And then I have So when I moved from Wellesley to um, uh, um, to Roanoke. There are a lot of different reasons for that, but I think that the major one was that after 23 years in academia and teaching museum theory and, and museum philosophy and museum ethics and museum history, I decided to figure out whether I could put my money where my mouth was and, and, and work in the <laughs> civic sector and see if what I had been teaching was actually accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to teach it, to actually do it is something completely different and being a director right. in a university museum is vastly different than being director in a in a privately legally, legally funded or, or civic institution. So I went to Roanoke and um, I had a distinct set of goals for Roanoke and they were things that the trustees and I had partnered on there' was a distinct need for um, uh, for sort of to make an institution sustainable that had spent 67 million dollars on a building but hadn't thought about what it cost to run it. Um, which is not atypical, right. um, and so after four years there, it it was done. I, had, I the institution was made sustainable. I had done created the pathways for uh, the original patrons to come back in and start funding the institution again, and created pathways within the city and built up a relationship with the public school system and taken the institution to 120,000 people a year. And um, that was the time to you know, turn it over to somebody else. So I think that I have certain goals and aspirations for an institution, and when they're met. It's time for somebody else to come on in. Um, moving here was actually pretty easy in a, in, a, in a lot of ways. It was like coming home again to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was sort of coming back to an area that I knew pretty well. Um, I had – Phil Berman was one of my patrons at Northwestern University, so I had become somewhat familiar with the area. He's the first one to introduce me to this area really. Mm-hmm. Uh, being close to the Poconos were good where I spent a lot of summers. Um, being close to New York City was great, my mother, uh, but also the institution in terms of being able to integrate the museum into the life of downtown, being able to foster a larger, uh, more deeper relationship with the public school systems in terms of how an institution changes when the demographics of the surrounding community vastly alter uh, from what it was 30 or 40 or 50 years ago right. to what it is today, all that's pretty exciting stuff. Um, and so um, coming here was an exciting opportunity. Um, it meant, you know. Moving my wife and four dogs. and meant my kids who were all over the United States, having to fly into a different region of the country. Um, they, uh, they
1: were already on a plane anyway. so oh, what's, all the time what's Just the difference?
2: didn't matter. <laughs> um, but it was um, it was really an exciting uh, possibility, and I thought the trustees when they hired me, were looking for all the right things. They had a pretty realistic view of, of um, the community and what was happening. They wanted to see greater integration with the developments downtown. Um, and really understood the role of the museum educationally and as a as a social force within the community. So it was a great choice to come. But I do think you have to realize, you know, in changing any position, what your strengths, weaknesses. I mean, you sort of do a SWOT analysis: what right. what strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to your to accomplishing what you want, and all work um, in a really nice way here.
1: Well, and and running uh, an arts organization, uh, being in the nonprofit sector is. Is difficult. I think you know. There's always funding pressures that that one has. You know. There's no, uh, and by that I mean there's never enough funding. You're always out. You know, fundraising in in a perpetual um, cycle. And being a CEO of a for-profit enterprise, whether it's a physician's practice or a software company or uh, you know a service business or a real estate company, is a completely different animal than running a nonprofit. I mean, you have to be a fundraiser. You have to be a politician to some extent. A big extent. Uh, You have to be as much of a salesperson as you would be if you were, you know, trying to get a a, a real estate development project approved and you were out, you know, trying to get key stakeholders in the community to buy in. Um, Probably, I think you have to be a little bit more of a salesperson because um, in a very kind of everyday sense, you know, people understand why they may or may not want a, I guess we shouldn't be using brand names, but you know, they may or may not understand why they want a big supermarket chain right at the corner because they can go there every day. They, they, it makes their life a little bit more convenient or what have you. But when you're out fundraising for an arts organization, that's something that doesn't resonate with everybody you know you've got a smaller you know community of people that go oh okay i know what this is you know i know what what this means and why i should support it so i guess one of the questions i have is is you know how do you deal with that constant pressure of of having to en- you have to enlarge the donor base i mean that has to be at the top of the list of of what what the staff is focused on every every day
2: so I can ask that a little bit with an anecdotal story and I'll try to keep this short. When I was a student at the, at the Getty Leadership Institute in 2005, one of the first things they did, exercises they did to sort of break the ice was you, you separate yourselves into these five teams and each team and each person first had to do a model. They gave you all these arts and crafts material and did a model and please describe what the arts world is like to you. Um, and then each team got to choose one model to present to the group. So I did a three ring circus as my model, <laughs> which actually got chosen by the group as the most appropriate to present to the other group. And instead of presenting the model, we actually did a three-ring circus with jugglers and fruit flying in the air and peanuts on the ground and animals in the room. And it was something that Getty never forgave us for because we completely messed up the room. Um, but. The arts world is a little like a three-ring circus and it's a good three-ring circus because there are so many constituencies that have that want to have a say and are committed and want to talk to you about it. But trying to merge that into a common agenda and in a single direction of sustainability and quality um, and community interaction and engagement is is pretty hard task at, at times. Um, uh, I think in, in Allentown, <clears throat> there has been so many years of um, – difficult financial situations that I think we've also lost sight at times of what it means to be sustainable um, and what sustainability actually requires of the community. Um, And so um, it's even a little more hairy in – I find, at least in in Allentown about um, trying to um, develop a contemporary mission and a contemporary direction. That doesn't fall back upon the past, but honors the past, but recognizes that we are fundamentally different today than we were 30 years ago and have to rethink the structures and rethink the model. Because in reality, the model that has supported the arts and defined the arts for God knows how many years is pretty much dead. And we don't have the replacement model yet. And so there's a lot of punting and kicking to determine right. what that yeah. placement model really is. Um, And so you have to be – you're a juggler and you're not going to please everybody. And as we convert an institution into a 21st century institution, there are going to be some people who come along for the ride and some people who don't. There are going to be new constituencies and new players on the table. Uh, There are going to be new technologies and new directions. We're going to redefine some of what we think is art and some of what we don't think is is art and we're going to be rethinking who who sits at the table. Um, To make all this happen, both in a funding sense, but also in a um, directional sense in terms of programmatic initiatives. And that's all um, uh, pretty interesting, but also pretty difficult. I think for some constituencies, there's a, a sense of displacement. For others, there's a sense of excitement. For others, there's a sense of, well... How do we work this, and how do we do this? For others, there's you know the definition of collaboration and how you collaborate, and how difficult collaboration is, um, um, in terms of getting people together on a common agenda, is actually um, uh, pretty fascinating and and pretty hard um, to organize. So part of my role, if that's the origin of the question, sure, um, is <laughs> I'm not sure anymore. This is your, uh, this is your answer. It can, um, it can be. Uh... Part of my role <clears> is to is to gather up the forces in a common direction mm-hmm. but make it realistic to who we are. Right. The model for the Allentown Art Museum doesn't sit in Philadelphia and it doesn't sit in New York. It sits here and reinforcing some sense of realism about what you can do given the financial structure of the community, given the cultural identity of the community, given um, the nature of the funding community, given the nature of the building that, that we're in and all making that exciting becomes um, – um, at times, it may look like a three-ring circus and at times, it looks like great strategy and at times, it looks like a political necessity and at times, it looks like great excitement in terms of how we can move and shake in the community and engage new audiences and provide new structures for people to get involved and at times, it looks scary because some people don't want to do that or they want to look in a different direction. It's actually pretty interesting times we live in. With that concomitant response of beware of the interesting times we live in, but. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's definitely uh, an understatement. I think. Well, if that wasn't uh, a masterclass in all of the forces that uh, <laughs> arts organizations are up against, uh, I don't know what was. Um, uh, David, thanks so much for uh, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for inviting me, and thanks for doing what you do. I think what what, what you're doing with jazz is unbelievably phenomenal.
1: Oh, thank you. We're uh, we've we have some interesting things to. Uh, announced where I'm really excited about 2016 so we'll great. hopefully uh, uh, mid January we'll be able to come out with uh, with our uh, our anchor performers and um, it's gonna it, it will be different than what people expect I, I can say that for sure so that's great all right well thanks again David and I'm sure we'll talk again uh, soon look forward to it okay thanks. thanks a lot
0: thanks for listening to creative confidential with Brian Tuck to have Brian consult for your arts organization, for public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at TuckLaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net this has been a Steve Mitman social media creation, creation. Steve mitman social media.com. Dot dot com. Dot com.